Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, how a notorious people smuggler escaped justice. This summer, a human trafficker was sentenced to life in prison in Ethiopia. But Kidani Sakarius Habtamerium is not behind bars, having escaped from custody in the middle of his trial. The Eritrean, known simply as Kidani, oversaw an extensive smuggling operation in Libya involving many thousands of people. For me, I've been reporting on refugee migration issues for years and since 2018, I've particularly focused on what is happening to refugees in Libya. Sally Hayden has been covering what is effectively a 21st century slave trade for the Irish Times. I'm sure a lot of people know the central Mediterranean route is the deadliest in the world. At least 115 people are missing, fear drowned after a boat carrying migrants sank off the coast of Libya. People are dying there all the time, drowning, basically just desperate to reach safety. We've continued to see reports overnight in local media of bodies washing ashore in Libya. She has documented how refugees and migrants have been lured to Libya with false promises that they would reach Europe quickly and safely. They'd be promised you could get there in a few weeks if you pay this certain amount of money. Instead, they were locked up and tortured, and their families were forced to pay enormous ransoms to secure their freedom. I've been speaking to refugees in Libya about the conditions that they're facing while they're there, about the journeys they make to get to Libya. And there were a few names that just kept coming up again and again, and one of them was this name, Kidani. So Kidani and Walid as well were two names that... I heard repeated, and what they were saying were these were smugglers, um, like human smugglers or traffickers, and Kidani basically runs warehouses or was running warehouses in a town called Bani Walid, which refugees, they call it the ghost city because there's basically no rule of law and also so many people die there. People often travel on like a go now, pay later scheme. So what happens is they don't even pay anything until they reach Libya. And so to many people who are, you know, fleeing dictatorships or wars in Somalia and Darfur in Sudan, this can sound very tempting to them because for them, it, like staying still is a problem. So they go to Libya and then what happens is that's where many of them first actually came in, in touch with Kidani face to face. And what happens is you get held in a warehouse and on the first day you're told, OK, call your family. I know that we told you that the cost of crossing might be 2,000 euro, but actually it's 5,000 euro or 6,000 euro. And you're going to have to pay that if you want to continue your journey. You say 2,000 euro or 6,000 euro, which obviously sounds like a lot of money in Ireland. But in the context of sub-Saharan Africa and in, in, con- in the context of this trade, it must be a staggering amount of money, is it? Yeah, it's absolutely staggering. And the thing is that it actually depends on your nationality, how much is usually demanded of you. So Eritreans, for example, a lot will have relatives who have already traveled to Europe. They'll be spread out in diaspora in, in Europe or else in America. And when, you know, when they need to raise money, they at least they're perceived to be able to tap on these networks. And so even though it's a huge amount of money, the smugglers believe that they will be able to call people who are already in Europe and say, you know, send that money. Um, what often happens, which I've also reported a lot on, is actually more and more people are turning to crowdfunding. So they'll actually 
post on Facebook a picture of someone. Um, and so what happens is like at the start, you know, it's it's polite enough. They say, okay, just call your family, get the money. You'll move on quickly if you pay. But after a few days, you start being beaten. You can start being tortured. You can start being starved if you don't pay this money. And so people are actually posting photos of um, their relatives being tortured on Facebook to crowdfund money. And they'll send like a phone number, you know, there's mobile money in a lot of Africa. Mm. Um, so they post a phone number, like send money to donate to this number or, you know, someone will gather together that money and then they'll pay it to a smuggler. But yeah, it's, it's a very uh, grim use of social media. That was one that once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. Like also WhatsApp groups, there are WhatsApp groups where people will appeal, like, please send money. Families will beg in churches, beg in markets. I interviewed one victim of Kidani, whose family actually went on the radio in Ethiopia and said, please send money to us. We need to pay this ransom for a smuggler. So it's not hidden if you know where to look, if you, once you become aware of it. So this must have been a very lucrative operation for Kidani. Do we know how long he was doing it in Libya? And do we know how many people would have been trafficked through his hands? Yeah, so victims say that Kidani was operating in Libya from about 2014 until early 2018. Um, and one of the very interesting things, I mean, also very grim, <laughs> but interesting things is the role that European migration policy has played in this because initially both Kadani and Walid, who was actually arrested the month after him in Ethiopia, the other smuggler, they were moving people quickly. So actually it was relatively easy to cross the sea to Europe. And so they had more and more people coming all the time. And so they wouldn't store people for that long. They'd move them along and actually send them out on the sea. Um, and I was told that they moved tens of thousands of people, like very large numbers, particularly in 2015, which was, you know, the height of what we call the, the migration crisis in Europe. Then in 2017, Europe basically started supporting, equipping, training and the Libyan Coast Guard to do interceptions. So to stop people from leaving Libya and from reaching Italy or Malta. Um, and to date, they've stopped, they've intercepted more than 60,000 refugees and migrants. So what happened from 2017 was that it became very, very difficult to actually reach Europe, which meant that this word got passed along to North Africa, um, Horn of Africa countries, who then decided, you know, we'll find another route to try and reach safety because that's not a good route anymore, which meant that the smugglers' incomes were actually being affected. So the way that they found to keep making money was to start selling refugees between each other. So once you pay your ransom, then you wouldn't actually get released or sent to sea. You would get sold to another smuggler who would then demand the same ransom again. And that means that people ended up paying, you know, huge, like huge sums of money. Like I spoke to someone who paid more than 20,000 in ransoms, $20,000, like, you know, absolutely extortionate. And they were basically being told you're going to be killed if you can't raise this. And actually people did die. So it's interesting in terms of the European migration policy, because a lot of the justification you hear for this um, support of the Libyan Coast Guard, these interceptions is that we're going to tackle the smuggling business. But actually what happened was people had no escape from the smuggling business with trafficking. So they got trapped with the traffickers. A lot of people got stuck there for years, just being sold between different smugglers, different traffickers. Thank you.
And given that you're talking about thousands of lives here, I presume the authorities in Libya and in other countries must have been aware this was happening. I mean, it's hard to hide a thousand people in a warehouse, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, Libya, most people would say, doesn't really have rule of law in that kind of sense. Um, and yeah, probably the authorities did know, but they, you know, there've been a lot of allegations that they're involved in smuggling. There's been proof they've been involved in smuggling and a lot of incidents. You know, Libya, they've just formed a new government, actually. So hopefully things are going to be getting better. But, you know, even now there's two governments effectively. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the country is really being governed by militias or um, different tribal leaders. That's what anyone who was held in Baniwali, they first of all said there wasn't rule of law there. You know, weapons were the things that spoke to people, weapons and money. And so you have these men who have a lot of money. They can, they were hiring armed guards to guard the compound that these warehouses were in. And um, people who stayed there said they never saw police, but they wouldn't, like, the police must have known that it was there. But, you know, there wasn't a functioning police system, really. Ultimately, Kadani was arrested. He was arrested in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. Can you tell us how that story unfolded? So basically, there was a victim of Kadani's called Fad Bedru, who was in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and just spotted Kadani in the streets. And Kadani was at an electronics shop and Fad ran to a policeman and just said, that man's one of the biggest smugglers in the world. You have to arrest him. Um, and the policeman did <laughs> like the policeman went up and and started to detain him Kidani apparently pulled money out of his pocket like he recognized Fad he said you know this just between me and Fad don't you get involved here have some money for your coffee hmm. um offered him I think a few hundred dollars and the policeman said no we're going to detain you and Kidani tried a few tricks to get away he said he was diabetic so he had to go buy something sugary. And when he went to the shop, he threw his phone behind because obviously the phone would have had evidence on it that he didn't want to be God, but they caught the phone. Then he tried to run away, but he fell over apparently. So it almost sounded comic, except that it was obviously very serious. And then a month later, Walid, the other smuggler who was working with him, was also detained. And yeah, then they stayed in, in prison for the next year on trial. Throughout the trial, witnesses raised concerns that Kidani could bribe his way out of prison. Their worst fears appeared to be realised before the court even had a chance to convict him. In February, in the middle of a court sitting, Kidani simply changed out of his prison clothes in a toilet block in the federal court in Addis Ababa and walked to freedom. Ethiopian journalist Lul Estefanos was in court that day. On that particular afternoon, moments before his session were due to begin, Mr. Kidani claimed that he had a stomach thing and had to go to the bathroom. So when he went to the bathroom, somebody had already left him civilly enclosed in there. So he changed out of his prison uniform and simply walked out of the main gate of the federal court. So uh, the following morning, I went to the attorney general's office and spoke to the director of uh, border crossing and organized crimes uh, prosecution department. He had a strong suspicion of bribery. He told me that they didn't uh, alert the attorney general's office immediately right after. They didn't let them know of the escape, but they waited till the end of the day. So he he had a strong suspicion of bribery, and he said that uh, Hidani has been attempting to escape from the day 
he got apprehended and uh, the attorney general's office had made a point to uh, notify the prison administration of this and told them to be on high alert. Sally, the trial did continue in Kadani's absence, isn't that right? Kadani was sentenced to life in prison without parole, but of course he's not there, so that really means absolutely nothing. And also, Walid, the other smuggler who has been on trial, actually then they beefed up security for him by like a massive amount, and he's now been convicted and sentenced to 18 years in prison and probably is cursing Kidani that Kidani was the one who got away because they know each other quite well. And in terms of the authorities in Ethiopia, how serious were they taking this particular case? Was it being widely reported on in the Ethiopian press? I actually travelled to Ethiopia for the whole of October last year because I had heard this case was going on um, and I heard that there was basically no international attention, no journalists were turning up, no one no one was following this. Um, and actually I had reported on this for the Irish Times in March 2020. Um, we did a big investigation about the smuggling trade in Libya. It was called the 21st century slave trade, I think, about how people are being bought and sold. And it named both Kadani and, and the other smuggler Walid. And I was told that the prosecutors, that the attorney general's office were actually given a copy of that investigation by someone who was involved in it to basically kind of impress upon them how significant these guys were because, you know, they weren't necessarily grasping it. But, you know, the interesting thing for me was it wasn't just that the Ethiopian uh, system wasn't aware of the significance of these men, but that there were no international observers. And that by that, I mean, diplomats, I mean, like other governments, but also human rights groups, UN agencies, like all of these work on, um, you know, they work on this issue of migration. Uh, North Africa, like I said, Central Mediterranean, it's the deadliest migration route um, in the world from my understanding. And so, um, you know, and there's so much discussion about tackling smuggling routes, how the smugglers are the ones responsible. This time we actually had two very significant smugglers that were apprehended and nobody was present. It was me and Lul in the courtroom. We were the only people not involved in the trial. Lul, do we have any inkling as to where Kidani might be and how likely it is that he'll ever be found? Kidani is an international criminal and uh, not, not a small-time uh, criminal. I presume that uh, he have uh, a lot of connections and there's almost no chance uh, that he would stay in Ethiopia after his escape. I, I can't say it's likely that he'll be captured, but uh, it's still possible. If the Ethiopian government and the federal police uh, is taking his capture seriously, uh, they can cooperate with uh, the governments of Sudan or Libya. I think he might be in one of those two countries. Uh, so if they ask for a cooperation, they might they might be able to capture him and bring him back. Actually, the court uh, rendering his sentence uh, gave an order to the federal police and Addis Ababa police to do their absolute best effort to capture Kidani and and uh, bring him to justice. Coming up, the 21st century slave trade on Europe's doorstep. Sally, you mentioned that big investigative piece that you did for the Irish Times and, and you characterised it as the 21st century slave trade. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what was going on in the town of 
Bani Walid in Libya and just how concentrated that slave trade was. Yeah, I mean, there were a few hot spots for people being gathered like that. But basically what happens is that people are gathered inside warehouses. So up to a thousand people inside one warehouse and they're all just being held for ransom effectively. Like you can't really call it a payment anymore because the amounts being demanded are much higher than the person had understood when they agreed to make this journey. And Bani Walid certainly was one hotspot for that. So before you went to the sea, before you went to the coast in Libya, you were held there and that was where you had to pay um, this money. Everybody that I've interviewed who's been through this process, they say like they felt like they were animals, you know, they felt like they were cargo. They weren't, they were totally denied their humanity. They were just being stored as, you know, a profit making piece of cargo. And how long were they being kept in these warehouses? And I'd say the conditions must have been pretty horrendous. Yeah, most people I've spoken to were kept there at least a year, many of them at least a year, some two years, just sleeping on the floor, a lot of disease. There's a lot of uh, psychological problems as well when you get trapped in a situation like that. So all the time, one guy told me all the time there was talking, you just never, you never had any moment of silence and you weren't even allowed to walk outside until you had paid your money. So you just stay inside all of the time. Then, of course, there was a lot of sexual violence, a lot of physical violence. Walid in particular, the smuggler who's still in jail at the moment, he um, was infamous for sexual violence, for basically either raping women or demanding, you know, still rape, but demanding that they have sex with him if they wanted to be allowed to cross to Europe. And what I was told was it didn't matter where they, you know, were they married, were they very young, like it, he didn't care. There's really horrible stories about what happened there. One of the notable things was that no women actually testified against Walid, no female victims. I was actually just in Gothenburg in Sweden with victims of Walid, like with, with people who were held by him, and they were quite upset about that. They were like, that was what he was doing. He was raping everybody, you know, but of course, like, women don't want to come forward because... There's, a, there's many reasons, like there's, you know, a lot of societal shame as well. If you're the one who speaks up and says that this has happened to you. So without a woman coming forward to say that that was her experience, the prosecutors say they can't bring those charges. Sally, we don't know where Kadani is and his associate in the Libya operation, Walid, is now behind bars. But this 21st century slave trade, is it still going on today with different smugglers running things? Yeah, it's continuing right now. One of the smugglers who's quite well known, Abdusalam, his name is, he's apparently put out a call saying that um, the route to Europe is open again, that people should start heading to Libya. He's saying that it will cost you $3,000 to come from Sudan we're from Ethiopia. And then when you get again past the Libyan border, you get told, no, it's $6,000. And in Ethiopia, in northern Ethiopia, Tigray, people will know that there's a war going on at the moment. 350,000 people are said to be living in famine conditions. They're desperate to, to get to somewhere safe again. And there aren't enough legal routes. Ireland, for example, we've resettled 250 people since the start of 2020. And so when you think about the huge needs, you know, and then people say, why don't they use legal routes? The legal routes really aren't available for the vast, vast majority of people. 
So of course they're going to try what they can. And I can just see it getting worse. And then the interceptions at sea are continuing. Uh, 1,000 people in New Daily Record were intercepted in one day and they're being sent back to detention centers. I was talking to someone else who paid 700 euro to get out of detention center this week. So you're paying the Libyan authorities as well um, to get out of the detention center. Then the only way you can get out of Libya is by paying again to try and cross the sea. So it's basically just becoming a bigger and bigger business where everybody's getting extorted. So not only are they dealing with this enslavement in, in these horrendous conditions in Libya, that the ones who are, and I use the word advisedly, lucky enough to get out of the detention centres then have to cross the Med at one of the most dangerous crossing points in the world. And I presume over the course of the summer, we're going to see more and more people being killed uh, and it'll be reported on in the Irish media and the international press. But in your in your mind, is enough being done to, to actually deal with the problem? No, absolutely no. And I mean, I think that that's, there are two, two particularly important things that I hope that people would bear in mind when they read these type of reports. One is that crossing the sea is only the end of a very, very long ordeal. And that's only if you manage to actually cross. Otherwise, you're trapped in a cycle where you get put in detention centers where you're extorted, like government-associated detention centers. You pay your way out of those. You entrust your lives again to smugglers who extort you again. Um, and you don't, you don't have a legal way out of that. Like, so, you know, you're, you're basically doing this cycle over and over again until you actually manage to cross the sea or be very, a very tiny number selected for a legal route. And so when you read a report saying, Oh, someone's crossed the sea. It's not like that's the start of the journey. That's generally the end of like a five, six year ordeal, you know? Um, and then the other thing is that we hear a lot of rhetoric about, you know, how the smugglers are responsible, you know, how we need to tackle the smugglers and the smuggling business. And again, like smugglers are re responding to a demand. They're responding to the fact that there aren't legal routes to safety. If there were legal routes to safety, people wouldn't be entrusting their lives to smugglers. And for me, it was very emblematic of the fact that, you know, we hear this rhetoric to justify policies like the Libyan Coast Guard being funded, you know, to do interceptions. The rhetoric is we're tackling smuggling routes, but... Um, but for me, I was sitting in a courtroom with one of the, you know, one of the most significant smugglers in Libya and there was no one else there. <laughs> so what does that say about European policy and how much they care about actually tackling smugglers, actually making sure that they're being brought to justice? So I think, again, you know, that, and for me, that's why this story was important. It was important to follow this trial. You can follow all of Sally Hayden's reporting from Africa on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Monday. <laughs>